Hey everyone, welcome to Stepsero. Matteo here speaking. Today we have Rory as a, as a guest. Rory is a speaker, coach, founder of Roaring Berry, and overall a very interesting person. Uh, he will be speaking about change in the in the work environment, specifically now with uh, anything that happened with uh, with COVID. He will touch upon his background in acting and uh, overall, I guess, uh, we will have a very interesting conversation. Rory, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really, really stoked to be part of this grand experience of yours um, and it's a great honor to be invited. So let's have some fun. Let's do it. Um, let's, let's kick off with, uh, with your background. You know, we'll uh, just introduce yourself to the audience and tell us um, a bit more about what you bring on a table professionally, but also why mental health is so important to you. When we spoke before the recording, you obviously have great background, both professionally and personally. And, uh, and we know that mental health is a topic that, uh, that is very close to you. Can you share with, uh, with the audience? Sure. So originally born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa, and I live in the UK. Um, and this is where I've made my new home for now, but who knows where the world will take me as an improviser. We go with what we sent and what we feel. So who knows, maybe I'll be living next door to you at some point and we'll get up to more mischief in terms of what I do and what I bring. Obviously I spent 10 years as a professional actor, eight of which I was making stuff up on stage as an improviser. During that time, I, really just connected with improv as a way of life more than just a way to make money and have fun. And it's translated into what I now do on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is coaching people, working with people and helping them be the sort of best version of themselves to use the cheesy phrase that sometimes is thrown around. Um, and the reason mental health is so important to me is especially as men, we have this thing which is drummed into us from when we're really small. We're like, cowboys don't cry, suck it up, man up. And that doesn't help. And what it does is it actually forces us to not be able to feel, which then causes mental health on different levels in different ways. And that manifests in just crazy behavior and or really shut off behavior and the inability to feel and cry, especially as we get older, so if you see a 40 year old man crying, you just assume somebody's died. He can't be crying because he's happy. And even if somebody has passed away, sometimes you, you, they can't process it. And that's really, really unhealthy. So for me, the improv stuff for mental health, as I said, especially for boys, because we're bad at talking about feelings, but also just the creativity of improv. We were born creative. We are creative people. If you give a group of kids four sticks, some sand and a, and a random blanket, they'll have forts, they'll have weapons, they'll have a whole city, they'll have a kite, they'll have a plane, all of these things. And creativity is so key to mental health. And we've had it beaten out of us, which is why I love the freedom that improv brings give that back to us, which is why I use it so much when I'm doing all of the coaching, training um, and speaking that I do. Interesting. And how did you, how did you get into improv? I mean, obviously the, the, you know, the advantages and we'll touch more on that later 
are clear and uh, and the fact that we need to kind of reconnect with our inner child yes is uh, you know is 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 very um, is very evident and clear but like how did you get into improv the first time and by the way like when we speak about improv is it like comedy improv exclusively or or is there more to it so a lot of people assume that improv is just comedy fun um, and that is true with a caveat that it's about improvisation of theater so sometimes you have big, powerful, deep scenes that you create, and there's no laughs, but they still connect and resonate with the audience. I mean, I did, we did a fundraiser for a, um, a, um, a organization that helps women trying to escape abuse, um, where we did a 13 hour improvised soap opera. Now, as good as we are, you can't just hunt the laugh for 13 hours. We had to move the story along, create the characters. I was a half elf for 13 hours, like you do. Um, and it was just such a beautiful experience because it was long, it's called long form improv. And that's where you do character development and all of these other things. And that's where storytelling comes through as a really big part of one of the lovely skills that improv teaches you. In terms of how I got into it, well, when I left school, I almost became an accountant, nothing against accountants, um, and then realized I didn't quite gel with tax and auditing. We weren't friends. So I ended up finding a more creative space, which led me via summer camp in America to acting in South Africa. And I was at a friend's birthday party and I watched an improv show and there was a girl that was a Rubik's cube. And I was like, that is awesome. And I walked out and I was like, I want to do improv right now forever. And so I I've got a hold of the, the troupe that did it. I went to their training course. Um, I went to their advanced training course. And then I was very, very lucky to be invited to come and play. And so I got to play loads and loads and loads. Wow, and uh, yeah, it's the first time I hear of somebody playing the Rubik's Cube, but it's interesting. Like, so, and, and, and that like basically, allowed you to turn into a, to turn it into a profession right like and and you know what people you know for those people who don't know you have never come across your profile you have a great way of combining uh, your theater background and acting background and improv experience to the workplace and because you do work with a lot of professionals uh, you do yes. work with uh, people managers you do work with uh, uh, people from you know any sort of background, but you specifically deal with a lot of professionals. So, should we get into um, you know the connection between your acting background and the professional world? I know that you paid specifically lately a lot of attention to the way the workplace has changed. Uh, you know, we speak a lot about COVID, tough times for for all of us, and uh, and obviously this changed a lot of things for, for many of us, changed a lot of things for many workplaces. But yeah. it seems like you have a great and very original way of, of approaching that. Can we, can we get a bit into that? Yeah, absolutely. So the transition from full-time actor into what I do now was twofold. One, um, as much as I love the performing arts, I do also like to eat. Um, regularly and actors as you know live on a sort of love and hope system occasionally 
Um, I also met my now wife um, and I didn't want to live sort of, to quote the classics, in my parents' basement. Um, I wanted to live with her and only her and our now fur children. We've got dogs and cats. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I realized that a lot of the skills that I took completely for granted as a result of learning via the performing arts, and it for me are as obvious as breathing, when I share them in other spaces, people look at me kind of like I've reinvented the wheel sometimes. They're like, whoa, I didn't even think of it that way. And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> and so I've I transitioned into moving into the corporate space because I started off actually as a pitch coach for entrepreneurs um, because so many of these really technical, brilliant people couldn't tell the story of why they did it. So they couldn't tell their why story really well. And these people were trying to pitch for money. And so no one was buying because they couldn't sell their story. And when I realized that A, so obviously presentation is easy because I've been on stage and B, storytelling is easy because I've been on stage. Um, and I could connect with them on a really simple level because one of the beautiful things about improv is they, there's this sort of concept of park your agenda. So when I'm, if the two of us are on stage together, my job is to make you look good. Mm. And your job is to make me look good. And so it's not about me, it's about the collective we. And as such, it doesn't matter what I walk onto stage with in my head as a possibility. If you give me something, I take it and run with it. So the ability to connect with people is quite sincere at speed, if that makes sense. Which means that when I'm going in to help these people, I just, I ask the questions and I listen. And I just ask, wait, and wait, and glean, and I fish, I fish, I fish. And then they use their own words to find the solutions. And that's the kind of improv side of me going, I want to make you look good. So I'm going to give you stuff so that you can then answer it for yourself. Therefore, it resonates deeper with you on a much bigger level. And as a result, you can then really make big change in a short space of time to your, your world, your space, your environment, and whatever situation you're in. Um, one of my coaches actually said to me, could you stop beating me up with my own words? <laughs> and I said, well, it's better your words than mine. And she went, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> and she was sold from that moment on. And she was sold from that moment on. Um, in terms of sort of like the the business side of things and, and what I love to really do, it's disconnecting the clinical, for want of a better word, like the sterile, and just bringing back the human. Like this time of COVID, as obviously I do no way, shape or form want to belittle it or minimize it, but we have seen so much of the human being put back into humanity. And it's been so powerful to watch and see and experience. I mean, in, in our very road, we've got a couple of slightly elderly people that obviously can't have family visiting them and stuff. More than one of us, myself included, have occasionally just, you just like knock on the door, take four steps back so you're not too close when they open it. Um, and then be like, do you need anything from the shops? Oh yeah, can you get me a tin of peaches? Fabulous, no worries at all. And 
we've just reconnected on such a deeper level with so many people, even though, I mean, like now we're, we're chatting and you're not exactly close by. We couldn't do this without a very long commute. Um, but we have connected through this time, through technology, through intentionality, through realizing what's so really important. So like the, the perfection and imperfection of places like your Instagrams and with love and respect, your sort of your social media influences. I mean, no one's sort of gone, oh, you know what I've really missed? That random guy that posts about handbags. Like, no one cares. People have been posting about like their walks outside in nature. We've reconnected with nature. People have been posting about the cool things that they've been sharing. And it's not boasting, it's connecting. And that's why it's resonated and worked so really well for people. Um, I do think the workplace is going to radically change as a result of all of this. And for me, companies that were trying to fight against letting people work from home are realizing that they're more productive or as productive. And as such, their excuses for saying no are going away. People are also realizing they don't need to commute two hours by train one way to do an eight-hour day. People are loving not having to commute. I see at the end of all of this businesses having to adapt to their workforce going, I'm working from home three days a week. I don't mind coming in for X days because I know we've got to have group meetings and I know it's important and the culture stuff and the connectivity. I get that. And I don't think that'll ever go away. I think there will always be a need to congregate when we're allowed to in groups. Mm -hmm. But I think that the flexibility around that is going to be significantly higher. And the companies that can and will adapt are the ones that are going to really survive now. The ones that are going, we're going back to the old way are going to suffer because their staff will leave. And that, I mean, you, you touched on a couple of very powerful uh, pointers. And, you know, specifically, you speak a lot about the transition from me to we. Uh, yeah. And, and that's very powerful, you know, like it makes me think immediately about politics within, within the office culture, so common, right? Uh, and we spoke like a few, a few episodes ago about, uh, you know, sometimes having around meetings, people willing to speak their piece without, without giving space to anybody else because they feel like it's so important to, to speak their mind and be, and be the ones like at the front row raising their hand and saying like, hey, I have something to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and what do you say? Like it's actually, you know, we need to, we need to get used to uh, reverting that, that mentality because, you know, like it happens on the stage. If, uh, like you said, if me and you are on the stage, you want me to look good and vice versa, right? Yeah. And it's a very powerful thing. And the same happens, the same happens on, this, uh, on this transition back to the office where leaders and people managers and organizational, organizations specifically should say, you know, if I wanted to, to embrace this transition to, you know, from, from me to we and I want to make my employees look good, then I should probably listen to what I have to say. And if they say that 
they'd rather work from home, like at least part of the week, then we should go for that. Otherwise, it's all for nothing, right? Yeah. And I think that the, the, the real key there is flexibility, sort of improv. <laughs> and there in the beauty, when you get onto the stage, you don't know what's going to happen. Your entire job is to, like you said, make the other person look good, the me to we thing. So you don't come on and going, right, it's this or this that's going to happen. It's something's going to happen. And so when businesses are talking with their staff now, it's not a case of, right, it's five days or no days in the office. It's going to be that communication, that sort of arm wrestle, if you will, of where do we get to that is the fine balance. And companies that can properly embrace that are really going to retain, but also attract top talent hmm. because they're no longer going to have to be related like in this geographical area that I can get the top talent from. If you as a business say, we need to have people in the building once a month because we're going to have a big sort of pizza evening. I don't know, whatever. And anyone then in the whole of the UK in this example, could work for that company or anyone in the world, if they're happy to fly here, if they're allowed to for one day a month. And all of a sudden your talent pool goes from this to like monster. Yeah. That's gotta be good. The, the sort of the, the beautiful, and this is something that I've been starting to think about and talk about a bit more. The sort of the double knock on effect from that, which is quite cool is, it's going to change the high street in the smaller towns and cities and villages because people are going to not be in the big cities anymore. They're going to be on the outskirts. So those high streets are going to have to have shops in. They might not be the same ones that they used to have, but people will go and have their, you know, their casual Starbucks down the road instead of two and a half hours that way on the train. Secondary from that, some of these bigger corporates are suddenly going to go, Oh, I don't need this much space anymore. So they're going to downsize, which means you have commercial property that then could in theory be repurposed as housing, which means you save and solve part of the housing problem that we have. And you save more of nature because you're not ripping down trees to build stuff because there's space that's empty that you can fill. Interesting. And this is a very unique perspective. Very interesting. Like my question would be, can you plan around such flexibility? Like, cause you know, where this is, this is like a, a big change that you're talking about and it starts with leaders and organizations understanding that, you know, there is such thing as we, and there is such thing as, as employees needs. And I'm not saying that some companies don't do that. You know, some companies or organizations are great at it, but yeah. uh, a large deal of organizations are not, are not quite there. So if they, if they understand that there is, there is the need for such transition, is it something they can plan around or is it something that they need to just embrace and go with the flow and, uh, and see what happens? Because this is like a big change that you know, I can see happening clearly, but yeah, yeah. The, first, the, first, the initial phase of change is something that seems to me very difficult to to embrace to it's very yeah. difficult to take the first step towards that change so my honest answer on that and this is what i really strongly feel is that it starts with management 
and they need to, even if it's a case of they need to get coaching first to be able to lead differently. I'm not saying better, just differently. Um, because what has been drummed into so many people from so many business schools for so long is you measure all of your data by seeing the people, by cracking the whip, by beating them with sticks and making them sit there till five o'clock because that's when they paid till. And that model is dead. Now, obviously there's certain things where you can't just wander off if you've finished your shift. There's, there's like manufacturing and things which, which are different to office-based things. And it's gonna obviously be industry-specific, company-specific, but it's gonna start with leadership going, it's about outcomes versus presence. Mm -hmm. It's about results versus time clocks. It's about trusting people to be adults and not treating them like children. Because the mental thing is, it doesn't matter how old you are, if you, get start, if you start getting treated like a child, you know how you behave. <laughs> I can tell you it's not like an adult. <laughs> and so until leaders can look at, and I say this with the most respect, their human capital as the most valuable resource in their business, they cannot embrace this stuff mm -hmm. because until you fully grasp that that person is mega mega important to my business you're never going to treat them like the precious precious resource that they are call centers are often deemed as sort of i'll oh, just just find seven bodies humans breathing stick them next to a phone and they'll be okay that's a terrible way to approach a call center when in many cases that is the only touch point your business has yep. with customers in a human form yep. so if i'm dealing with some fresh out of school 18 year old who doesn't have the life experience and or the technical experience to actually help me my experience with your business is miserable yeah yeah and and yeah that's that's a that's a really good point and i guess <clears throat> this can all be reconnected and correct me if i'm wrong with with the you know the getting out of your comfort zone thing right because yes. people people attribute this to in our case employees mostly or leaders mostly here we're talking about the whole organization that needs to get out of of its own comfort zone right because yeah. um you know there's there's a there's a lot of organizations that keep embracing this uh, legacy order, legacy processes, so to speak. And no matter how many C-level people they, they change or go through, the legacy, the, the process of the organizations stay. So the organization as a whole needs to, needs to be, start being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? And, and improv, improv is such a big part of that. So how can we start to you know going back to the to yeah, yeah, yeah. like how can we start to bring improv inside the organization and, and start you know telling managers and people hey this is this is not just comedy this is yeah. this is not just this is life <laughs> you know it's 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 life and it can be applied to so many aspects of your organization how do you do that so i'd say there's two major ways 
The first one is embrace mistakes as gifts. Because if I'm on stage and I, and I mess up a scene, I can't exactly just walk off wailing. I've got to go with it. And we've got to take that little mistake, see it as a gift, be 100% present in that moment and accept it, work with it, make some magic with it and see where it goes. And within that sort of make, make it, um, see mistake as a gift and be 100% present in the moment, that's one of the things that I love about improv. There is no plan B. Like you are one, if you are not 100% present in the moment on that stage, you're stuffed. Because if, unless you are all in, you're going to mess it up. Now, yes, that means you do have the opportunity to see that mistake as a gift. But if you're not all in, you're not going to see it as a gift. You're going to grump, kill the scene and try and get off stage as fast as possible. <laughs> the same with leaders and managers and employees. People are terrified to try things, bring ideas, suggest things because it might be seen as wrong. That's bollocks. How are you supposed to learn or grow or be better without that mythical bad word of failure? I mean, did all of these majestic, wonderful, brilliant inventors from the past get it right first time every time? No. You hear stories about people that a thousand attempts before they got this to work, 500 attempts before they got this to work. And that's where. I mean, even to an extent, like programming or computer stuff is really, you can tell I know very lots about computer stuff, but the concept like this, try it. Oh, it didn't work. What did work? This worked, this worked, and this worked. Okay, we keep that and we bin this. And now we try new things over here. Well, we got closer to the goal. So this, this was, and this new thing worked now. They learn by failing, fail forward. You often hear people say, do fail, learn, repeat is an epic book by a guy called Nick that I know. And that's the thing, unless you are trying and you're making the mistakes so that you can learn, you're never going to get there. And that's one of the big things that organizations need to do, in my opinion. And the second thing is learn to take a beat. Um, you'll often find that if I'm posting on like, um, LinkedIn and stuff, I'll often use the hashtag take a beat because there is such power in brevity. We do this massively clever thing where we overcomplicate it and do this whole thing. When we could have just taken a step to the left and move forward one. Um, and one of my favorite, and I know it's quite weird and uh, examples of this is the space race. NASA spent billions inventing a pen that could write in space. Russia took a pencil. Mm -hmm. They just took a beat, they kept it simple, and it worked. Now, is it nice to have a cool pen that you can write upside down with in zero gravity? Duh, yes. <laughs> but does a pencil work just as well? Yeah. Fair enough. And I mean, this is, you know, you have, you have a very simple and fun way of, uh, of explaining things that are actually 
very meaningful, right? And, and obviously you know this, but I want to make sure that people listening to it understand as well. And so if I, if I may like um, explain these two points again, one is to embrace mistakes as gifts, obviously. Yes. Like you said, you know, you're on stage, you make a mistake, you cannot just walk off and cry, like you need to keep going. And, and so you see, you see your mistake as an opportunity to fail forward, right? Yeah. Um, the second thing is to basically stop overcomplicating things. And this is something that is very close to me because I'm, I'm, I tend to overcomplicate things. I'm sure a lot of people tend to do that. How do you, like, how do you, like, what's a practical way to stop overcomplicating things? Like, you know, there's, there's things like you're, you're a little bit tired, you're in the office and you need to send uh, an important email and you read that email five, six, ten times uh, as if it would look any better. And, uh, and how do you how do you go about, you know, simply stopping overthinking, overcomplicating? Because this is this is such a this is a huge thing for for a lot of us. I mean, full disclosure, I still get it wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm definitely not perfect on this one. Uh, none of us are. If we were, we were robots, and then we'd be boring. But I think the big thing is. So for me personally, if I find myself having what I call the wobble, wobble, shake moment. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. Um, um, I know I need to take a beat. And I will literally stand up and go for a five minute walk. Hmm. There's so many things that they'll talk to you about exercise, endorphins and da, 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 da. But for me, it's about changing the scenery. And so if I'm finding myself obsessing about something like that, I will get up and get away. Um, I've also, um, oh, this will be fun. I do something with all coaches, um, and I'm happy to share this with you and your audience. I talk about an awe, wonder, and joy diary. And essentially what this is, is at the end of every day, and I ask all new coaches to do it for 21 days minimum, because that's generally when you can create a behavior change in terms of your brain chemistry and stuff. At the end of every day, write down one thing that either brings awe, wonder, or joy to you, and that's a 100% personal to you thing. And it can be a massive thing. I want a new contract, yay. And it can be an incredibly small thing, like I walked outside and there was a bumblebee on a flower. Now, I love bumblebees. Um, I love bumblebees. They're just like, they make me happy. The little boop boops as they're cruising around, I just love them. And so I'm really lucky that if I'm in a position, and obviously weather permitting, season permitting, but if I'm able to get outside, I'll just literally wander for five minutes in my garden and just sort of hang out with a bumblebee <laughs> just to kind of take that beat, take that breath, recenter, and then come back and finish it off. Mm -hmm. I think that we often overcomplicate trying to simplify it by going, I'll just finish this thing and then I can simplify it. Unless someone is literally going to die because you have to send that email right now, I guarantee you it can wait. Mm -hmm. Stand up, get away, five minute break, come back, you'll have clarity, you'll have slowed down your mind and then you will be able to execute better. And I think from a mental health perspective, 
right now, a lot of people are getting what I call lockdown fatigue. And they don't know what it is, but it manifests in different ways for different people. So, oh, my battery ran out of charge on my phone. Flip the table, lose it, kick and scream. That is mental health fatigue. You need to take a beat, you need to relax, you need to recharge. The post-it notes are the wrong color that I ordered. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> but when there's mental health fatigue and mental health stresses and strains, that's when they ordered the orange post-it notes. It doesn't matter. It's the same as a yellow one. It's just a different color. And that's when you need to have those, that awareness. And that's a lot of things that I will often help clients with is helping them find their things so that when they happen, they know what to do. Great. And well, that's, that's a lot of precious advice. I hope, I hope people listening are taking notes uh, as I am, because I have like a full page of notes. Uh, <laughs> so you, this is basically, and then, you know, as we approach kind of like the final, the final part of, of these episodes, unfortunately, but I, I feel like we will have another conversation with you very soon. Like this is basically kind of like what you do at Roaring Berry, right? Like, cause you have your own consulting agency. You have your own, um, you do your consulting. Like we said at the beginning of the, of the, of the, of our conversation, you work with a lot of professionals and this is what you try to transmit to them. This is what you try to uh, have them embrace, which is obviously being closely connected with failure as a way to move forward and and you know like you said take a beat and stop overcomplicating things and this leads to huge change right so yeah. do you want to maybe guide us through you know what you do at, at roaringberry how can this help professionals and why they should get in touch with you in that sense i'd love to thank you very much so what i do is i obviously work with individuals and with corporates um from an individual level it's coaching to help them find themselves in some cases a lot of the coaching ends up being about identity because one of the things that we often do is we associate our worth with the stuff we do mm -hmm. so if i stopped working at roaring berry i'm still rory if i stop being a so let's take lewis hamilton as an example there's talk that he might be retiring if his identity is entirely based on him as an F1 driver and you take away him being an F1 driver, he doesn't know who he is. If his identity is entirely based in him, then it doesn't matter if he's a driver. He, he drives cars, but he is him. So we do a lot of work around that. Obviously we use improv and play to do the exercises and help people through that. Um, I always tell people it's a longer journey than they think, but shorter than they'll realize. So people assume that they can like, and I'm fixed. Um, regretfully not. Um, <laughs> it takes time because to have lasting change, you need to see it over a consistent period of time. So I've got some coaches that I've been working with for two years now and their growth and progress has been amazing and I'm so proud of them and it's awesome to watch and be a part of. Um, I feel absolutely privileged every time I see somebody sort of just stepping into the fullness of who they are as a result of all of this. In terms of the stuff with corporates, I 
do a lot of work with helping them to play again um, around and also do work around culture. Once again, improv is one of my big vehicles that I use because I love it. And I think it's, it's lessons for life, not just the stage. Um, and within that, it's actually quite interesting because when you play or you play a game and then at the end of it, you go, right, did you guys know that you just did negotiation tactics? What? No, we didn't. Well, you wanted that in the scene. Yes. Did you get it? Yes. So did you negotiate? Yes. <laughs> Way. <laughs> um, and then obviously in terms of the corporates, I would love to do even more work with high level execs to help them turn their businesses around to become more sort of, me to we centric and and helping them adapt and experience this time because one of the things that a lot of people are not necessarily thinking about or prepared for yet is there's going to be more anxiety going back to work than there was going into lockdown and i think that that is going to be one of the big things that we're going to need to be watching for caring about and supporting people in as they go through the next three, six, 12 months as the world sort of reboots and restarts and we all emerge from our little cocoons and sort of go, oh, you're a human, I'm allowed to talk to you now. Oh, I can hug you, yay. Um, so I think even though we are craving that connection, there's still gonna be a lot of stuff in the back of our heads being like, oh, but do you have, ooh, uh, mm. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk to you. Uh, don't lick my face. Um, <laughs> and so therein lies some of the, I think that's going to be a big key focus for all organizations that want to look after their staff for the next two to three years. There's going to be legacy stuff that we're going to need to support people to give them space to feel, to give them space to have bad days, to, 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 to give them space to have good days because it's going to be a roller coaster, And I think it's going to be, it's going to be an incredible opportunity for companies to show how much they care. That's, that's amazing. And, and, you know, if I, I would say the main pointers, the main takeaways for me, because everything you say is very interesting. And, you know, I, I love, I love talking to you. Like there's a few things that, you know, that I, if I'm allowed to, I would say extract from this conversation, definitely, obviously improv is, is a big thing. And the, and the, 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 consequences of, of improv are are very clear and very positive play play is a, is a huge thing right like you mentioned role play and i think correct me if i'm wrong that probably connects with sort of experiential training right like you kind of play uh situations that would in fact actually happen in their in their professional and work life so you recreate situations where they like you mentioned they might not even realize they were negotiating but in fact they were yeah. And, uh, and this is all, you know, through, through play and having fun. Uh, but obviously, you know, we talk about fun, we talk about comedy, but the, com the, the consequences are very, very serious. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is amazing. It's, it's, uh, it's a new thing for me. It's something that I'm sure a lot of people would love to explore. Um, Can I just add something around the experiential training? Please. Um, I love that part of it because people always talk about, sort of the only way to learn is by doing. There is no better way to learn how to deal with a really upset customer than to have a really upset customer in front of you, but in a safe environment mm -hmm. where you can learn how to handle, but then also process your feelings. 
because a lot of sales training is they say this, you rebut like that, you close, you get the sale. And that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that method. But in this specific small example, I'll do a, this happened, they said that, how do you feel? What? How do you feel? I feel rejected. Why? Well, they rejected me. But did they? Did they reject you? Or did they reject the thing you're trying to give them? Um, they reject the thing. So they didn't reject you. No. And that's where we see such powerful learning happen, like you say, through play and creativity as the vehicle. Because I often say, if you're not laughing, you're not learning. We have laughter in all the sessions. Sometimes we have crying too, and that's okay. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, just I just wanted to add that to, to what you were saying in terms of the beauty of improv coming through that experiential learning to help people. I'm happy you did that because this is this clarifies things even further. And and I'll, I'll be honest, like I'm I'm not you know I I did not come across probably any professional like you who's so clear on the importance you know of applying play and improv and in this case experiential training to a professional context. So to me, it's very unique. is extremely extremely helpful. And, uh, you know, if this podcast is of any help, I really hope that more people will get in touch with you and understand the importance of what you're doing, right? So we, I, I really urge people to, to get in touch with you, to check Roaringberry, to, to check, like, all the work that you're doing, because I think it will be extremely crucial, important, like you said, in the next probably two, three years, but obviously always, but specifically yeah. now after after such a difficult time like people need to to connect with their with themselves to 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 embrace this switch from me to we and these are all things that every organization like no exception made need at uh, at this moment in time um the last question for the episode unfortunately you know we, we, we went over time but it was expected like with you, you as a guest there's so many interesting thing, things to discuss uh one very last question uh any suggestion, recommendation uh, for people who would want to, you know, uh, follow uh, specific resources, not necessarily on, on improv or, or on applying play to work, but any uh, resource that you consider useful in the topic of mental health? It's a big question. Um, and my answer is quite simple. You've got to find the thing that resonates with you. I could tell you that I follow Tony Robbins as an example, because I like his stuff, but he might not resonate with you. So my honest answer on this one, and this is the most sincere thing, find the thing that absolutely fires up your heart that you can completely 100% connect and resonate with, because that's the thing that's going to help feed you as you being the fullness of you. Um, I know that we've spoken about sort of my embrace your inner Marmite stuff, and we can talk about that in another time, maybe another, maybe another episode, if you'll have me back. Um, but I think that you've got to find, yes, I can say I love stuff from Rich Mulholland. I love stuff from Tony Robbins. I like that person. I like that person. And you might get an 80% connection with it, but then you might just find sort of randomly Mary, who's the lady down the road, who's got a blog because she missed her cat when it passed away and that's like bang that's you 
So find your specific thing that resonates 100%. And then what you'll do is once you find your thing, you'll find periphery around that, that will then give you more content because the stuff that you have will have stuff very similar around it at the same time. Well, Rory, what can I say? Like, I'm, I'm really genuinely happy we had you on the podcast. I'm pretty sure we'll have you on board again because there's, you, know, you mentioned the Marmite, there's a lot of things that I know you have in, you have in store for, uh, for Dora, myself, and everyone who's listening. Uh, Rory, thank you so much for, for accepting to you know, support the cause and sharing your own experience, and hopefully I'll talk to you very soon. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are doing awesome work and anything that I can do to help get the, the word about mental health and the mental health awareness out there, please let me know. I appreciate it so much. Rory, have a, have a great weekend ahead and, uh, and we'll speak soon. Definitely.